this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we were offering six conversations from Season 3, Episode 25, four from our review of Nash Drug Development in 2022 with Stephen Harrison, and two from our Extrasode, a summary of Madrigal Pharmaceuticals' presentation at this spring's Liver Connect meeting. In this presentation from Liver Connect meeting, Marcelo Kugelmas talks about patient management, morbidity, and mortality data, and then answers some questions from me on those same topics. Finally, Dr. Naeem Al-Khoury conducts a brief interview with us on the implications of the San Antonio Military Medical Study in terms of prevalence and some of the steps that he takes in his practice to encourage more patients to be screened for liver disease. This podcast represents the views of the speakers and does not necessarily represent the views of Mandrigal. The content herein is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. Now that noted, Surfing the Next Tsunami is delighted to share this program from Liver Connect Meeting and the insights of these key opinion leaders. A lot to think about here. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Hi, this is Roger Green, executive producer and host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Last month, we attended and recorded presentations that Drs. Mazen Nouradine and Marcelo Kugelmas delivered titled Emerging Concepts in Non-Alcoholic Steatohepatitis, or NASH. This presentation was developed and sponsored by Madrigal Pharmaceuticals. Today, I would like to share highlights of the two presentations along with segments from interviews I conducted with Drs. Nouradine, Kugelmas, and Naeem al during the conference. Please note, we have re-recorded some sections of Dr. Nouradine's presentation to improve clarity and eliminate background noise. The podcast represents the views of the speakers and does not necessarily represent the views of The content herein is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. The first section of this podcast will include Dr. Nouradine's presentation, followed by our conversation that took place later that day. The second section will include Dr. Kugelmas's presentation, followed by our conversation that took place the following week. The last section is a brief discussion with Dr. Alcori, following up on some themes from the presentation. Let me take you back to the beginning of the presentation. If you wish to view the actual slides while following along, click the link that says Slides to view the presentation while listening. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Keith Miller from Madrigal Pharmaceuticals. We're pleased to support this program today on non-alcoholic steatohepatitis presented by two people you know very well, Drs. Maz Norden and Marcelo Kukamas. We hope you find it to be an informative discussion and look forward to the discussion that it engenders. And now, let's hear from Dr. Marcelo Kugelmas. Hi, everyone. Thank you, Mazen. And thank you to Madrigal for sponsoring this program. We're going to finish the talk. Let's start talking about morbidity and mortality. NASH with fibrosis is associated with an increased rate of mortality. As you go from simple steatosis to NASH without fibrosis to non-serotic fibrosis and then to cirrhosis, that is when you have all the effect of this disease. Now, Mazen explained that for liver outcomes, the people that are at risk for liver outcomes are those with stage 2, stage 3, and stage 4 disease. And I am concerned that most of the guidelines talk about, well, the other ones will not have liver outcomes, but they will have other kinds of outcomes. They will still have cardiovascular outcomes and they will still have non-hepatic malignancies and things that need to be looked at. So the fact that they don't have advanced liver disease doesn't mean that we have to give them up and that they are okay to go home and never come back. The other issue is that this is a progressive disease. So today they may be okay, but I want to evaluate these people 
maybe on a yearly basis, maybe every two years, maybe every three years, but not give them a free pass. Don't ever come back because the disease could progress. And as somebody who has experience with laboratory testing and non-invasive testing, people make mistakes all the time. So if you think that clinically what you're seeing is different than what a single test tells you, repeat the test. If the patient has early fibrosis, they're okay today. They have other things to worry about, but bring them tomorrow and reevaluate them. The risk of liver-related death is statistically higher only after progression to stage 2 disease or higher. For stage 2 disease, the rate ratio is 9.57 compared to 1.41 in stage 1. And then you go to 16.69 and 42.3 for cirrhotics. You see among patients with NASH, those with cirrhosis are at greater risk for decompensation, hepatocellular carcinoma, or death compared with less advanced fibrosis. So you have stage 3 on the left, stage 4 with compensated disease, and then stage four cirrhotic, still with compensated disease by child by child to cut pew scoring, but they are already showing one extra point. They have progressed in some way. And so those could be clinically translated to the beginning of portal hypertension, for example, which makes a difference between cirrhosis without or with portal hypertension. So overall mortality or liver transplantation, 3% for stage three, and for stage four is 11% for the more advanced stage 4 or the beginning of decompensation, which is not quite decompensated yet, 58%. Same for the first occurrence of a major clinical event, whether it's hepatic decompensation, more, it's mostly hepatic decompensation. The liver cancer, non-hepatic malignant neoplasms, and major vascular events are similar in between stage 4 with an A5 Chaltricot Pew score or A6. And because of sample size, there were none seen for non-hepatic malignancies or major vascular events in the A6 group. This is older data from Paul Angulo, and we've all quoted this paper multiple, multiple times. Cardiovascular disease is being the number one cause of death for this population, 38.3%. Non-liver cancer, 18.7%. And then the third most common cause is liver cirrhosis and its complications, 7.8%. Now, the change in disease activity in the NAS score is associated with changes in fibrosis. In other words, inflammation is what drives this condition to continue to deposit fibrosis, alter the structure of the liver, and alter its function, leading to cirrhosis and the complications uh, from cirrhosis. So a high NAS score at baseline has been associated with progression to fibrosis stage 3 and 4. So in other words, if we were to do liver biopsies on most people, and I definitely do not advocate this, and we shouldn't really, if we saw those with higher NAS scores with more ballooning and inflammation in their liver biopsies, those are the patients that deserve the closer follow-up. And if we had a way of assessing that inflammatory component and a non-invasive test, that's what we would like to follow. Now, there's technologies being developed for that, not part of the purview of today's talk, but there's people that are working on this to try to differentiate what is NAFLD or NASH with or without different intensity of fibrosis. And then the trajectory of this fibrosis change is directly associated with changes in disease activity. So that's what we want to modify. Patient identification. This is simple. If you see a patient, one out of every four will have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And if you see somebody with diabetes, half of them are going to have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So my best way of identifying new patients is to go to the endoscopy suite, go through the past medical history and order fiber scans for everybody with diabetes. It's simple. So what are the things that we can do for these patients? Simple evaluation scores, blood work or wet biomarkers, FIB4 probably 
probably the most commonly used. The NAFLD fibrosis score and the APRI are utilized probably less. They have less significant data behind them. FIB4 is part of the guidelines. Easy to obtain. There's an online calculator. You can pretty much do it for anybody. Then dry biomarkers, the imaging techniques. Typical tool that primary care will use and send you a patient for. Patient went in for whatever reason. They were accompanying a family member that had an emergency, went through the emergency room, and they got a CT scan themselves as well, or an ultrasound. And the ultrasound showed fatty liver, the CT scan showed fatty liver, and then the patient gets referred to us. Much less commonly, people will get MRIs, and definitely we can do MRI with PDFF, with proton density fat fractionation, to quantitate the amount of fat in the liver, and then MR elastography. Now, MR technology, while it might be the best test there is out there, is usually the least one utilized, simply a matter of access and cost. So conventional ultrasound and CT scan tend to be the most common imaging techniques. For many of us, we have access to vibration-controlled transient elastography or fiber scan, and there are several commercial companies that have machines for this. It is a very helpful test. It's non-invasive. It doesn't hurt. There is no risk, and it's incredibly cheap. It's very, very good for its negative predictive value. From a hepatology point of view, if your VCTE shows that the patient has no significant stiffness to the liver, then that liver is likely squishy and healthy, and that's a good thing. If the fiber scan tells you this liver looks stiff, the only meaning of that is that this patient deserves further workup. So the high kilopascal result for stiffness in the fiber scan just means you need to do further workup for this patient. Lastly, proprietary serum testing, and mostly it would be the ELF Pro-C3 and NIS4 have less data behind it. The ELF is recently approved by the FDA. I don't know how many of us are using it, but we will probably use it extensively. It'll be also a little bit different from the FIB4 in that the FIB4 doesn't cost more to the patient. The ELF will. How often should we do this testing? I think that is a great question. Most of the data that we have is about the initial evaluation of the patient. There's not a whole lot of data looking at repeating these tests yearly, every other year, according to stage. How should we do it? There's not a whole lot of guidance. But if you have a patient, the, the more advanced the disease, the more you should think about repeating the assessment. Fat accumulation tends to change, and that is something that you can follow, and it's quite dynamic. You could follow it on a yearly basis or even more frequently. Fibrosis tends to be a lot slower, and the initial data would say that you don't want to look at fibrosis every single year because you're going to do a whole lot of unnecessary testing. There's a couple of screening algorithms out there. This is one from AGA, and we start here, primary care, endocrinology, gastroenterology, and obesity specialists. The knowledge depth of each one of these groups is probably different, and the interest of each one of these groups is probably different. So depending on how well-versed they are, they want to go through part or whole of the algorithm. As I said, step one is identify the patients at risks. You can really start by, by looking at them. So two or more of the metabolic risk factors, central obesity, dyslipidemia, hypertension, insulin resistance, or diabetes. Then everybody with type 2 diabetes should be evaluated for fatty liver disease. And anybody that shows steatosis on any imaging modality or anybody with chronically elevated liver tests, because NAFLD is now the number one cause for chronically elevated liver tests. Step two is actually try to differentiate what is causing this condition. We send a test of all the liver serologies, we do imaging, and we assess for autoimmune conditions, viral hepatitis, inherited disorders, disorders of iron metabolism, whatever 
it is, we do ask them about alcohol and some of them will actually tell us the truth. The patients with intermediate risk or with high risk, intermediate being 8 to 12 kPAs and high risk greater than 12 kPAs, those require further testing. The AGA guidelines has referred to a hepatology for liver biopsy or MR elastography or monitoring with re-evaluation of risk in two to three years. My editorial comments. If you're in the yellow category, I don't necessarily do a liver biopsy unless there's a differential diagnosis to be elucidated. If I have a suspicion that they could have autoimmune hepatitis or something else, I'll do a liver biopsy. Otherwise, I will not do a liver biopsy. I will try to get them into a research study through which they will always get a liver biopsy. But I will not do a liver biopsy for somebody that I can follow in the clinic. I think it's just too invasive and not necessarily a good test. It has a lot of variability, both inter and intra-observer variability, and a lot of sampling error. So I'm not a fan of liver biopsies. So you get what you can. In my practice, it'll be VCTE. And for the patient that could have advanced liver disease, I will probably want to do another dry NIT. In this case, I will push for some sort of MRI. I will still stay away from liver biopsies. I don't do liver biopsies to prove that a patient has cirrhosis. I think that we're beyond that in, in hepatology. This is the recommendations of the Diabetes Society. And what I want you to focus on are patients with type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes and elevated liver enzymes, the ALT in particular, or fatty liver on an ultrasound should be evaluated for the presence of non-alcoholic steatohepatitis and liver fibrosis. Evidence level C, but that is the recommendation for diabetologists. These are the easel guidelines and they're similar. So patients at risk for chronic liver disease, check history, rule out all the different conditions with the other usual workup. If you find that they have, let's say, autoimmune hepatitis, you refer to the specialist that manages that particular condition. And then if it's fatty liver disease, you decide whether it's alcoholic fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or both, which coexist in many, many, many patients. Do a FIB4. If the FIB4 is low, less than 1.30, that patient is done for the hepatology workup, but their care continues for all the other conditions that they have. And if they have FIB4 greater than 1.3, which is the indeterminate and high results, they will go to liver stiffness by transient elastography. And then you use the ELF or other patented serum tests when available, and you make a decision whether they need a liver biopsy or not, and what kind of intervention you're going to do. The most common side effect of chronic liver disease, the most common symptom of chronic liver disease, everybody that ever treated somebody with hepatitis C knows the answer, is to have no symptoms. Clearly, many of these patients will be obese, many of them will have sleeping problems, obstructive sleep apnea and things like that. But the most common symptom is to feel fine, which is actually sort of like a problem from a provider point of view, because if you feel fine, you're asking me to do all these things for what? I feel fine. I don't want to change. How are we asking them to change? Well, these are the guidelines. Because we have no approved medication at this time, lifestyle and dietary modification is the way to go. I give them a single sheet of paper that has on a single face all the dietary and lifestyle recommendations because nobody ever turns the page. So the instructions need to be simple. You need to be able to put them on the refrigerator and then you might have a chance to follow them. Believe me, I have had at least three patients that have lost over 100 pounds just with dietary and lifestyle modification. And I have had about 100,000 patients that didn't lose any weight. So while this is effective, it's not necessarily effective for all. It's just effective for those who are committed to doing the right things. So energy restriction and energy restriction starts by just eating less. 
I eat three servings of everything. Energy restriction for me would be two servings. My wife eats out of a normal dinner plate. Energy restriction for her would be to eat out of a salad plate. Give the patient something that they can actually follow. If you have access to a dietitian, if the patient can see a dietitian, if they can see somebody that will actually give them guidelines, coffee consumption. Coffee is fantastic. It makes the liver better. How many cups of coffee? Four cups of coffee if they can get to it. Don't go from zero to four in one week because you're going to end up in the ER with tachycardia, sweating, and hypertension. Go slowly. And if they don't want to get there, okay, they don't get there. But if they want, coffee is good. Which coffee is better? The cheapest coffee that has caffeine is the best. Macronutrient composition. Less fat, less carbohydrates, and reduced fructose intake. Then control daily alcohol intake. If you have liver disease, no alcohol is better than any alcohol. If you want to get into a lengthy discussion about how much alcohol you should have, that means that you drink too much. So my standard recommendation is don't drink any alcohol. If you have a child that gets married, yes, of course you can toast at their wedding. If you have 100 children that get married weekly, that's a problem, okay? Increase physical activity. Walk. Run, row, treadmill, elliptical, whatever it is you want, but do something and sweat at it. But because cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death for these patients, make sure your ticker is okay. So if you have heart disease, go see your cardiologist first. So as I said, there are no currently FDA-approved therapies for NASH, and so lifestyle and dietary modification are still the cornerstone of treatment. And if you belong to a practice that has access to research, that is the way to go. Bariatric surgery is excellent, and it has improved basically all outcomes of these conditions. Bariatric surgery, unfortunately, changes your lifestyle for good, and some people actually learn how to beat it. So not everybody's a good candidate for bariatric surgery, but when it works, it is the single thing that works the best for these patients. Now Roger Green follows up with questions for Marcelo. Marcelo, thanks for taking time in your incredibly busy office schedule today for this conversation. Let's dive right in. In your mind, what makes it important that we be treating NASH now as compared to diabetes, obesity, whatever else is in that constellation of diseases. NASH will become the third most common cause of death or has been shown to be the third most common cause of death for this group in general after cardiovascular and oncologic causes for mortality. This is already the number one cause for all chronic liver disease, for all cirrhosis, for all liver cancer, and for all referrals for liver transplantation in the United States. For most of us who believe in preventative medicine, we would like to treat now and as soon uh, and as well as possible so that we can prevent some of these negative outcomes in the near future to come. So today, how do you treat your diabetic patients? What does the initial conversation look like? How How do you frame that? I try to keep it simple. Basically, I tell them that everybody with diabetes is at risk of developing fatty liver disease and that a proportion of those patients with diabetes be screened for this condition in endocrinology offices. They will probably get blood work to include liver tests from time to time, as well as possibly a liver ultrasound. In our practice, we will use that blood work that they have available to calculate FIT4 index. If they are at intermediate or high risk, we will progress on to doing a fiber scan. So we're lucky enough to have one of these vibration control transient elastography technologies. It is a good tool to screen these patients. If they show a high result on the VCTE, then we go on to further testing. 
So the pathway is fairly simple. They tend to come with labs that can already tell us whether they have a suggestion on these wet biomarkers. And then we use a dry biomarker in my office to do that. And again, this technology is interesting because it can rule a lot of people out. It is not invasive, not painful. It is readily accessible to the patients. It tends to be cheap for everybody, and it definitely has no risk to doing it. And now Roger Green interviews Dr. Naeem Al-Khoury. Naeem, I want to take a couple of minutes and talk a little bit about the San Antonio study. Could you just walk through a little bit what you folks did and how you collected data and how you got to fiber scan people, really, and then what the results were? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, this was really the largest prospective study to evaluate the prevalence of both NAFLD and uh, NASH. The way the study was designed was individuals coming to the Army Hospital in San Antonio for their screening colonoscopy. So it was mainly middle-aged adults in their 50s. They had no idea they had any liver disease. So they had no history of hepatitis C or NASH. They didn't have significant alcohol consumption and they didn't have any known history of elevated liver enzymes. When they came for the colonoscopy class that we do before they undergo the colonoscopy procedure, we offered them to learn more about their liver health. And if they said yes, we signed them up for the study, they signed the consent, and then we actually took them to get fiber scan, but also MRI PDFF and MRI elastography. And this was the initial assessment that we did. We use MRI PDFF to quantify liver fat. We also had the criteria related to transient elastography and MR elastography and corrected T1. So if they're above a certain threshold, we also offered them a liver biopsy. What we found is that out of 664 patients that signed up for the study, that based on MRI PDFF, 38% had evidence of NAFLD. Then we offered them the biopsy and we found that 14% had evidence of NASH on liver biopsy. A couple of questions. If I recall correctly, only about 80% of patients that you offered the biopsy to took it. Did I call that number correctly? Yes. So we, we had, you know, some patients that actually declined to have the liver biopsy, which is understandable. Certainly. Is the 14% number corrected in any way for those who didn't have the liver biopsy? Or if you didn't take the liver biopsy, did that automatically put you into the non-NASH group? Yeah. So if you didn't have the biopsy, we assumed that you don't have NASH. So actually the 14% that we came up with could be an underestimate of the true prevalence of NASH. I'm not sure you captured this number. And if you didn't, I'd just love for you to guess. How many of the people that were in the colonoscopy class that you offered to learn about their liver said no? Honestly, the majority of people said yes. So if I remember the numbers correctly, we approach about 850 individuals and about 660 said yes. So the majority, about 75% said yes. I remember a really high percentage of the patients that you identified that had NAFLD in the San Antonio study also had diabetes. What was that number? The entire population, it was at uh, 38% for NAFLD and uh, 14% for NASH. For diabetes, it was double that. So we were at 70% for NAFLD and we were at 35% for NASH. And I remember Hispanic was over 50? 55% in Hispanics without other risk factors, just being Hispanic, and then about 25% with NASH. If you combine diabetes, obesity, Hispanic, we're talking about 90% and 45%. One of the challenges for gastroenterology is they run a lot of procedure. And when we learned that they have a problem with time, because they spend a lot of time doing procedure, but BCTE is not particularly well reimbursed compared to some of the other things they could be doing. My immediate thought was, I asked, well, gee, what's well reimbursed? And everybody said scopes. And my immediate reaction was, well, San Antonio study, right? You know, when patients are coming to get their screening colonoscopy, typically they're fasting. You can offer them transient elastography to assess for their liver health. And you can actually be more targeted and just look at patients with type 2 diabetes or obesity, dyslipidemia. But these patients, uh, once you identify that they have fatty liver disease, you 
can determine the severity of their disease and they become your liver patients as well. The other way that we do it actually is we offer transient elastography free of charge for anyone in the Phoenix and Tucson area. This is a program we started a couple of years ago. Patients come, we don't ask about insurance or anything. They get it absolutely for free. But if we identify fatty liver disease with significant fibrosis, we offer them to be seen in the clinic. And this way we have more patients walking through the door that become our patients. And we feel like this is one way to kind of identify early disease and give people peace of mind because many patients will not have significant disease and you can reassure them. And then we identify about 20% that will have significant disease. It's a fascinating way to build rapport with your patients and allow them to improve the quality of their life simply by learning more about what's not wrong with them. Especially given the uh, scarcity of transient elastography machines overall in the United States, we offer this to also gastroenterologists, uh, primary care physicians to send their patients to receive a free fiber scan and then we send back the interpretation to the referring provider and if they decide that they want them to see us in the hepatology clinic, we're happy to see them. But sometimes the GI provider just wants to know that elastography number and we are happy to do it. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next week with Stephen and Professor Quentin Anstey discussing what we've learned in the past year about non-invasive testing, histopathology, and best practices in diagnostics. Until then, stay safe and surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. This extra zone has been sponsored by Madrigal Pharmaceuticals, a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company pursuing novel therapeutics for NASH. Madrigal's lead candidate, Resmeterum, is a once-daily, oral, thyroid hormone receptor beta-selective agonist that is designed to target key underlying causes of NASH in the liver. Resmeterum is currently being evaluated in two Phase three clinical studies, Maestro NASH and Maestro NAFLD-1, designed to demonstrate multiple benefits in patients with NASH. For more information, visit www.madrigalpharma.com. <laughs> <laughs>